0: So turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's open with a word of prayer and dig into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. We ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. And Lord, Lord, as we look at the internal damage that can take place when believers are not walking in unity, I pray, Lord, we would learn a valuable lesson from what took place over 2,000 years ago, and still takes place in churches today. May we learn from it, and Lord, help us to walk in unity, uh, to be like-minded, to recognize we're all on the same side. And Lord, we want your kingdom to be, to be added to, your name to be glorified. So Lord, be our teacher, may, may man decrease, your spirit would increase. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. So Nehemiah, remember, Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the king, and word came back to him that even though the, there had been a disbursement back to Jerusalem after 70 years in bondage, it's been over 140 years, he got word back that it was still in rubble. And he was so burdened by it, even though he wasn't a contractor, he's a cupbearer. Cupbearer means you have a lot of access to the king. They were the ones that taste tested their food to make sure it wasn't poison. And when the king saw his countenance, Nehemiah's countenance, he asked him what was wrong. And he told him, the place where my ancestors are buried is still in rubble. Now, it was the same king who had told him that had stopped the rebuilding of the wall some years earlier, because other locals in that area said, if you let them rebuild the wall, they're going to you know, become an enemy of yours. They're going to take the taxes away from the people beyond the river, and you'll have less control. And so he put a stop to it. But this shows you what an impact Nehemiah had on this king because this Nehemiah uh, this king admired Nehemiah so much that he not only told him he could go back and rebuild but he gave him all the money he needed all the lumber that he needed gave him the the notes that he needed if he ran into people along the way that the king had sent him out and so now we've seen for the last several chapters that they began building the wall and we saw initially when they got there Nehemiah was heartbroken to see what was there and he faced some opposition Now, chapters four through six, we're going to be in chapter five tonight, we see six ways that when we're doing the work of God, opposition that we can face. And last week, we saw the first two. And the first two uh, that we saw, the first one was mocking and ridicule, seeking to discourage you and make you feel unworthy and incapable of being used by God. Anybody ever felt that way before? You felt incapable, you felt discouraged, you're like, oh, I'm, I don't have that gift, I'm not gifted enough, I couldn't teach the children, I'm not equipped for that, I couldn't do this. And that's what the enemy loves to tell you. You're of no value, you can't do it, and he loves to mock you. And we saw them mocking them as they began to rebuild. They said, you know, a fox will run up on top of that thing and the whole thing will come crumbling down. You guys don't know how to build anything. And they were discouraging them and ridiculing them and mocking them. All along the way. Well, when that didn't work, the second thing that came after mocking and ridicule was threats of physical violence. If you continue doing this, we're coming after you. Our armies are going to surround you. We're going to come after you. And the enemy will will try many different tactics to find the one that will work on you. If it's discouragement, he'll pile that on you. If it's a threat of losing your job for standing for the Lord, he'll bring that. And in this case, If mocking and ridicule and discouragement don't work, he turned to physical threats. Now, we know we don't fear men, but we fear God, but, well, at least we're called not to fear men, but sometimes we do. Sometimes we listen to what men say, sometimes we can be intimidated by them, but you know what? Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world, amen? Amen. Now, in chapter 5, the threat to the work does not come from the enemy. This time, it's going to come from within the Jews. There's going to be some Jewish people among them that are going to see that uh, some of the people, as we're going to see tonight, are struggling. There's famine in the land. There's, uh, There's high taxes. Sounds like California. So there's famine in the land, prices of food going through the roof, prices of taxes going way up. And so some of them, they're serving the Lord and then they're working And they're trying to make sure that they work on the wall, but they also have to make enough money to provide for their family. And we're going to see that some of them are mortgaging their houses to buy food. And others of them are borrowing money to pay their taxes. And sadly, what was happening is some of the other Jewish people were taking advantage of them and charging them what what we're going to see in tonight's text is called usury. Literally charging them super high taxes, like getting a payday loan. You don't want one of those, by the way. You know, 85% interest, right? So they charge them usury. And they're literally supposed to be on the same side and they're taking advantage of the people that are faithfully rebuilding the wall and sacrificing their time and working double hours to make sure their families are cared for and they're seeing them as an opportunity to get rich. And then we're gonna see how Nehemiah responds to that. Now, I will say this, I'm gonna be super, I'm super transparent with you guys anyway, but this is a Thursday night crowd, we're all family. In the last two years of my life, I have seen more inner attacks on ministry in my own personal life than I've seen in 33 years before it. And more that comes from the inside than even comes from the outside. And the enemy knows if it comes from the inside, it hurts more. When it comes from other believers, it's harder. We shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know God act like they don't know God. Amen? Unbelievers, dogs bark. Unbelievers, you know, Mock God, and we just go well. They're sinners, and they need to be saved. But it's hard when it comes from other believers, and it's hard when that those attacks come. And so we're going to see that in tonight's text. And I want to give us some ways that we should respond to it. How do we respond when you know we're, we're dealing with that? You know, and by the way, the devil loves nothing more than when Christians are fighting with each other. It's his favorite thing. He, he he has limited resources. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He's got a limited army. It's big, but it's limited, and so he can't be everywhere all the time. So he's going to go and attack in places where God is doing a great work. And if he goes into a church and he sees that they're already fighting with each other, he'll just keep going because he knows well they'll take care of each other. I don't even need to bother them. They're going to tear each other up. And you know what? As the body of Christ. We should be just as excited when people get saved down the street at a different denomination than when they get saved here. Amen? We're all on the same team. We're building the kingdom of God. And, you know, I'm trying. One of the things I love, and because you guys give, that now I'm full time for the first time in my life after 35 years, is I'm spending more time with other pastors. I'm able to go to prayer meetings in the morning and things like that. Because, guys, we're all on the same team. We all should be working together. Amen? And that should be our heart. And we're going to see in tonight's text that. When we see this stuff from the inside, there's lessons we can learn. So if you grab your outline, it's right there. I tell the message, division among God's people, lessons learned from strife among God's people. Number one, learning to balance serving the Lord and providing for your family at the same time. Now, if you are serving the Lord, and this is one area, I have a lot of areas where I have a lot to learn. This is one area I know pretty well. Because I spent 35 years working a full-time job, and being a pastor of a church at the same time. some t- Part of it, was an assistant, but as a senior pastor for 23 years, something like that. And there has to be a balance. And I learned, even in my own life growing up as a child, my dad was CEO of a company and pastoring a very large church at the same time. Now you know where I get it, okay? And so he was, he was just amazing. I would just watch him. I felt like, man, he's, he's like a robot. And my wife says the same thing about me, like, you, you can sleep an hour. What's wrong with you? Now, here's the reality is that we have to learn to balance that. And, and there's a couple things that can take place. You can do so much ministry that you neglect your family, or you can be so focused on, on only your family that you do no ministry. Now, your family is your first ministry, but it's not your only ministry. Amen? We want to minister to our family first. That's the number one thing. If you're, if you're not ministering to your wife, you got no business ministering to anybody else. If you're not ministering to your kids, you got no business ministering to anybody else. But Don't allow that to be the only ministry you have in your life and you neglect the gifts God's given you. I put here, uh, here's some reasons, providing uh, the things that can cap different issues why serving the Lord and providing for your family cannot cannot, uh, take place or doesn't take place. Number one, for not providing for your family, laziness. By the way, please don't bring that to me because you don't want to see that side of your pastor, okay? I just can't stand it. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I have no tolerance for it. Lord, help me. Can I get an amen to that? Where I just don't get it. If you read through Proverbs, the number one thing in Proverbs is wisdom. The second thing is diligence. It's going after laziness. And let me just say this to every man in here. A man who does not work shall not eat. A man who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. That's in the Bible. Amen? And too often you have men who, you know, they come in and their wives are working two jobs and they're playing video games. Lord, help me. Can I get an amen to that? I mean, I just go, Lord, help me not choke this guy out in Jesus' name. Can I get an amen to that? I'm just being transparent. I don't want to choke anybody out. I'm not a striker. That's one of the things in 1 Timothy 3. We don't want to be strikers. Amen? But there's a frustration because God has called you, God has equipped you, and you need to be faithful. And it's good for a man to work. Amen, men? Working is good for us. It's good to sweat. It's good to go out, and, and, and man, it's a blessing. It's in Genesis 3, you will toil by the sweat of your brow all the days of your life, and that's what a man's called to do. And a man who won't do that doesn't deserve a wife. Can I get an amen to that? And that's the first thing you should find. If you're looking for a godly man to be married to, make sure he's not lazy, and if you don't know if he is, send him my way. We'll find out. Amen. Number two, focusing so much on ministry to others that you neglect your family. So this is the opposite extreme, and I see this often where somebody, and, and you know what? I'll be honest with you. When I, first, when I was a young man in my early 20s, when we only had our daughter, and she was just an infant, our church, I was at part of a church plant, and it was really growing, and I was volunteering for everything. Oh, you, don't, you need someone to do I can do that. You need someone to teach in the president oh, I can do that. You need someone to, oh, we have a work day? Oh, okay, I'll be there. You, you know, and you, if you're not careful, you can volunteer for everything. Now, we don't want to volunteer for nothing, and we don't want to volunteer for everything. Amen? We want to be faithful to do things that we're called to do. Make sure that our, you know, I still touch base with my wife even now. I will say to I just said it to her three days ago. Hey babe, am I spending enough time with you? And sometimes she'll go, You spend way too much time with me. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, we've been married for almost 40 years. You know, we, we get it. And we have date nights every week where we just go out to dinner. And we need to do that. And we need to make sure we do that. And I need to make time for her. My wife is my first ministry. And I love all of you, but I love her more. Okay? And I'm all good with that. But you know what? There needs to be that balance. Thirdly, outside issues beyond your control can keep you from providing for your family. This is not your fault. You could have health issues. People have health issues and they can't work. And you know what? As a church, we want to help those people. Amen? Um, If you don't know this, in 2009, uh, I had a major, uh, I had a botched surgery that put me in a coma and I was in the hospital for nine months and I had 61 surgical procedures and my medical bills were over $2 million. And when I went into the hospital, I weighed 242 pounds. When I got home, I weighed 138 and I had tubes in my side, and it, it ended up me turning my church over to somebody else not long after I got back, because when I came home, my boys, I'd been away from my family for almost a year, and my boys had gone sideways. And so I needed to stop everything and go be their dad. And that's why I'm down here. to this. I wouldn't be here. I'd still be there. But God knows what He's doing, amen? But the point is, I was a guy who had worked at a really good job for a long time. It wiped out my entire, entire retirement account. It wiped out... When I mean, we came down here, We had just enough money for first and last month's rent, and I had a good job. So by the grace of God, we were able to build that back up. But I know what it's like to literally get wiped out by medical bills, literally. And it didn't work for almost a year. My job was almost all commission, and I had my kids in Christian school, and we're paying for that. So look, there are things beyond your control. But when they're beyond your control, God is in control. And God knows what you're going through. And there are times we're going to see that in tonight's text. This is what's going to happen to the Jews tonight they're going to be faithfully building the wall and faithfully trying to work. And then they're going to get hit with a famine and high-priced food. And then they're going to have taxes go through the roof and they're going to try to hold it all together. And a lot of this is beyond their control. So when it's, when it's beyond your control, come ask for help. We want to help you. Amen. We're the body of Christ. And then finally, poor stewardship of the resources God gives you. You know, I don't, we haven't done this here, but we used to have a, there's a couple different things you can use, uh, uh, Crown Financial, I know there's different people in our church that help with finances. If you struggle with your finances and you need help with them, uh, we might put together a class, Dave Ramsey, just, there's different classes like that that are based on biblical truth. And I want to encourage you that we just need to be good stewards of what God gives us, amen? And some of us need help with that. If you need help with that, that's okay. We want to help you with that as well. So these are four reasons why that people don't provide. We're going to see in tonight's text, it's going to be the third one. Number two is confronting those that are in the wrong. So when there's division amongst God's people, there are going to be times when people are outside of God's will and they're acting contrary to the word of God and they're bringing division within the body of Christ. And if we sit back and do nothing, we're letting the division happen. We sit back and say nothing out of fear. You, you saw what I wrote there, uh, proclaiming the truth without compromise, with the hope of restoring the way we're brother. It's where I get the term, Christians stab each other in the front. And there are times when we see people, and we've, and we've had it here, and I've had it every ministry I've been a part of, where people are doing things that are devices, I mean, you have to address it. And you have to love them enough to tell them the truth. Now, fortunately, I'm not real shy about telling the truth by the grace of God. And I try to be loving and I try to be gracious, but I promise, as the pastor, I'm accountable one day. If wolves are wandering in this church, we're going to have to address that. Amen? And it'll bring division in the body of Christ. But we need to confront people that are in the wrong, Now we need to do, speak the truth, and we need to do it in love, but don't apologize for the truth. Don't apologize for the Bible. Amen? I'm dealing with something completely outside of our church, and I had to make a really hard... And I was with five other guys, and the other four wanted to go another direction. I'm like, that's not the truth. We're not doing that. Don't put me on the board if you want to do it that way. I'll, I'll resign. And we ended up doing what we needed to do, and it was not easy, and it was difficult. But guys, we have to stand for the truth when nobody else will. Amen? And we need to confront it when it comes into the church. And we want to confront it to bring restoration, not destruction. Why is there godly discipline? It's to restore people, not to destroy people. Amen? If, I'm, if I get outside of God's will, please come confront me. Please. I want you to. Because, you know, hey, Pastor Dave, when you said that or that attitude or what, tell me, please. Because how many of you want to walk in the center of God's will? So if we get outside of it, don't you want somebody to love you enough to say, hey, you know, that behavior or, you know, the way you said that or I saw you doing this. We're not doing it because we want to be sin sniffers and be the, you know, the Holy Spirit police. No, what we want to do is we want to love people enough to draw them back into a closer relationship with the Lord. Amen? Number three, by being a godly example. How many of you guys need more godly examples in your life? And how many of you want to be a godly example? You know, often you're the only Christian some people know, or at least outspoken Christian, and you may be the only example of, of, of Christ to some people that are in your life. And you know what? We want to be a godly example. Look, we're all sinners saved by grace, and we'll never be a, a you know, we'll never be the perfect example of Jesus. That won't happen. But Jesus did tell us, be holy, for I am holy. And he did tell us that. He, he walks with us and he's given us his Holy Spirit so we can walk in faithful obedience to the Lord. And guys, obedience and faithfulness should not just be our goal. It should be the passion of our life. Amen. I want to live a holy, you've heard me say it, got put this some my heart years ago, holiness for me, grace for everyone else. Just Lord, help me to live a holy life. I've seen people near me in the not too distant past who have fallen. And every time I see that happen, it makes me want to live an even more holy life. Amen. When you see people fall away, doesn't it just make you want to? Oh man, Lord, for the grace of God. Because look, every take heed lest ye he fall. Amen? Amen. We can all fall. Anyone thinks we're above ever falling—that's when you fall. Because now you're being prideful. We need to say humble, broken, and desperate, and desire to walk in holiness. Our standard is the Lord and His Word, not the world. And the first, and I want to say this, this is how you know if someone's really living a holy life. This is between you and the Lord, because nobody else will know it. Your holiness is reflected in your private life. Your holiness is reflected in who you are when nobody's watching. We call that character. Amen? Reputation is who you are when everyone's watching. Character is who you are when no one's watching. And the real person you are is the person you are when you're by yourself. When nobody else is around, when you're looking at your phone by yourself, what are you looking at? When you're you know, on your own doing things and looking at things and imbibing and, and in things, what are you doing when no one else is there? Because when no one else is there, the Lord is there. And true holiness is seen in how you react when you're only with Him. And that's my prayer daily for me. Lord, I want to be so close to you that I can hear you whisper. I want to, I want to feel your breath on the back of my... I want to be so close to you, Lord... I don't want to be a step away from you, and I want to encourage all of us to be a godly example, and then our standard is the word of God, and it starts in our private life. The other thing we'll see in somebody who's a godly example, they give generously, they serve faithfully, and they esteem others greater than themselves. Let me say that again. They give generously, they serve faithfully, and they esteem others greater than ourselves. That's what we're going to see Nehemiah do tonight. He's going to give generously, he's going to serve faithfully, and he's going to esteem others greater than himself. That's where we get the term for agape. Agape is a selfless love that loves someone outside of itself more than itself. It's a love that gives. As believers, we should be the most generous, loving, greatest servants, and most giving people on the planet. Amen? And that should be, that's how we reflect Jesus, because that's who Jesus is. It's not about, look, we should vote, but we shouldn't be no more for our politics than our love for people. Amen? Amen? We should be known for the way we give and we love and we serve and we care about everybody and we're burdened for the lost. Also, by being an example in public life that others can follow. I pray that if, if your neighbors found out you were a Christian, they wouldn't be shocked. If your coworkers, workers he's saved, really? I mean, they, we want them, you know, <laughs> we, don't them be, we don't want them to be shocked. I've told this story before. We had an art department in San Jose, and, and uh, I had a Bible study we taught in the office, and a couple of my assistant pastors came out of that Bible study. But I had a friend from high school, and, and he was, you know, he had a nickname. I won't say it because he might be watching, but we had a nickname. I hope he is. God bless you. But here's the reality that he had a nickname that had to deal with how much he drank. He was drunk all the time. He just had a lot of things. He's a womanizer and you know, all this stuff. And so we're over in the art department one day, and I was inviting people to church. And we were talking about the Lord. And, and then uh, the guy walked over and he goes, oh, I'm a Christian too. And literally all five of the artists got out of their chairs, fell on the ground, and started laughing. Now, that's not the response you want when you tell people you're a Christian. Amen? We should be an example, and people should look And if they say you're, they don't say you're perfect. They go, yeah, that, that, that sounds right. That sounds right. I see how they treat people. I see how, they're, how kind and loving they are. I see how hard they work. They're, you know, We should be the best workers in the building. Amen? Lastly, I, I, I know I'm telling you what I'm going to tell you, then I'll tell you, then I'll tell you what I told you. I do it every week, right? So I'm, I'm going in depth here. Live every day with an eternal focus. You know what changes your priorities? An eternal focus. When you're thinking about eternity, you're a lot less worried about you know, the nick in your car door, and you're more worried about people getting saved. Amen? And what happens is when we get caught up in the things, and look, we should be good stewards of our stuff, but all the stuff's going to burn. You have to see a hearse pony, in a U-Haul, amen? You know, when we die, it won't matter. Get, you know, they say, how much did he leave behind? All of it, amen? And that's what happens. And then finally, seek only to glorify God, never to promote yourself. It's not about you, it's about him. We, I hope they will forget our name and remember his. And then finally... The last point here of lessons learned through strife amongst God's people is seeking praise only from God, never from man, living every moment of every day to please and honor the Lord. I feel like I already preached the whole message, didn't you? That's the point. Tell you what I'm going to tell you, then tell you, tell you what I told you and hope you'll remember it. Amen? So let's begin there looking at num- verse one uh, and then point number one there division among God's people, lessons learned from strife among God's people, learning to balance serving the Lord and providing for our family at the same time. So chapter four ended with a victory. They were back at work. They've got the wall 50% done. That's a great landmark for them because it'd been 140 years of lying in rubble, and now the wall's halfway done. They're getting the gates in order. It looks like they're making progress. Look at verse one. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brethren. So there was... Chapter four ended on this high note. The people of God were doing the work of God and they had done it despite the obstacles, despite the mocking, despite the ridicule, despite the threats of physical violence. They had just kept working. And what's amazing is those attacks of the enemy didn't stop them, but stuff from the inside is gonna be the closest thing to them giving up and it's in tonight's text. It's not the outward attacks from the enemy. It's gonna be the inward struggles Amongst their own people. And so there's an outcry amongst the people and their wives. So here's what we're learning. These guys are working all day on the wall, and then that's taking away some of their hours to provide for their family. And then they're providing for their family, and then the outcry comes from their wives, the ones who are at home taking care of the children, because now there's no food, and they're not being taken care of properly. And we're going to see that it's not just because they're working. We're going to see because they're being taken advantage of. Because notice what it says at the end of that verse, against their who? Their what? Their Jewish brethren. It's not against the Moabites and the Ammonites. It's not the the nations that surround them. It's people within their own tribe. It's people that should be helping with the ministry that's taking place there. And there's an outcry by the women against them. In this section, there's no mention of work being done on the wall, indicating the work has stopped. This is so heavy that the work comes to a screeching halt. They've been working for a time, time enough to get the wall halfway built, and this outcry comes, and the work stopped because of strife amongst God's people. The enemy could not stop the work by direct attack, but the work stopped when God's people weren't unified, and working together. And when God's people fight one another, they are neither fighting the real enemy nor getting the work done. Let me say that again. When God's people are fighting with each other, they're fighting with the wrong enemy, and they're not getting the work done. In Santa Cruz, I used to do this all the time. I never could make it happen. we get together with all the pastors, and I would say, hey, guys, we pastor in the tofu tie New Age lesbian capital of the United States, okay? We all know that this is Ichabod, the glorious departed. We know it's one of the most evil cities in America. Guess what? We all need to be on the same team. How about we do this? Let's pick a Sunday, and we all go to the football field and have service with every Christian in Santa Cruz County. How does that sound? Well, I don't think we can do that. Why not? Well, you know, um, well you know, if you teach, they'll all go to your church. Then you teach. Well, if your worship team plays, they're all going to want to go to your... They're more worried about holding on to their people than promoting the kingdom of God. And they've lost sight of unity. Amen? Then I was like, well, let's do a baptism at the beach. And let's just have every... I said, we do with 15 Calvaries. We have thousands of people down there. The whole place stops. They put it on the front of the newspaper. What if every church in Santa Cruz County did it? Oh, no, we can't do that because we baptize in the name of Jesus only. And we, we baptize, you know, stop it already. And it's so frustrating because it's like, and they're all protecting their little churches of 35 people that are never going to grow because they don't even teach the Bible anyway. But the reality is that it was like, come on, let's reach this city for Jesus. And what happens is, oh, I got to hold on to my, the bishop's going to come by in a few weeks. And if my attendance is down, I could lose my job. It's nauseating. Let's be on the same team. Amen? And so we have here that the unity is being challenged, and that will destroy this building of the wall faster than anything else. And what will keep, you know, I would just love it. Can you imagine if every church in the Caneo Valley, if we went to the biggest venue we could find and we packed it out and we just worshiped all day? How about that? And you know what? We need more of that, amen? And sadly, what happens is everybody's protecting their turf and their territory. So this, what was the source of the outcry It caused the work of God to come to an abrupt halt. The people were working diligently in the midst of great opposition, but now they were unable to provide for their families. Look at verse 2. And it says there in verse 2, so the wives are crying out, hey, God, you know, what's going on? We're going to see that the, the building stops. It says, for there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. While Nehemiah is a book about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and bringing God's people into a place of peace, security, and blessing, this section deals with a very practical issue of counting the costs and learning to balance your service to the Lord with providing with your family. So some of the wives are crying out, yeah, my husband's gone all day. He's working on the wall and he's got one hand on a trowel, another hand on a sword. And then he leaves from there and he goes over here and till, tills the field for a while, but not, we're not getting enough done because there's a famine in the land and the price of food has gone up, and they're taxing us into the ground. And what are you gonna do about it? Because my family's starving. Is that a valid question? It's a valid question. And they're asking, what can we do? Our sons and our daughters are starving. I'll tell you what, I'd rather be drugged behind a truck through gravel from here to New York than have my kids starving. How about you? I found out at one point, one of my kids, uh, they were married, and they didn't tell us. And one of my, my son-in-law, his checks were bouncing from both jobs he was working. We went to visit them with a surprise. and we went into their house. They had no food. And I cried for three days. And they had little kids, and they were buying food for the kids, and they were going without and I was, I was in tears. My, my wife and I went over to the grocery store next door and got a $2,000 gift card. <laughs> don't ever not have food ever again, right? Because you don't want your family starving. And they didn't want to ask us for help. And we're like, look, look you're our kids. So they, can you imagine the mom? Okay, I get that you're working on the wall, okay? And I know that you're working. We don't have any food. You need to fix this. The outcry is coming from the women for their children. And the men need to listen. Amen? Can't let the children starve. And again, so not providing, as we talked about, there's different reasons. Now, again, the people here are not providing. It's not these other reasons, but I want to go over them again because it's important. Number one reason why people don't provide is they're lazy. Genesis 3 says, you will toil by the sweat of your brow the days of your life. That's not the case here. These guys had a trowel in one hand, a sword in the other hand, and they were working in their off hours. So that's not why they're not being fed. But a lot of times that's why, even in churches today, people aren't getting fed because men aren't working. They're not. Uh, Secondly, focus so much time on ministering to others. Again, your first ministry is your family. Thirdly, outside issues beyond your control. That's what's going to take place. So what's taking place is these guys are serving because they know this is God's work. They feel called to do it. They're also doing the best they can to provide for their family. But these outside issues are making it impossible. And so they're going to need some outside help. They're going to need to address this. And then finally, poor stewardship. So the lessons for us all to learn for when it comes to faithfully serving, giving, and providing, again, most of the time, money problems. Now, the money problem here is not the money problem you usually see. Money problem in when you're building a wall is you usually run out of money for the wall. Or you run, you know, you're building a church, you run out of money for the church. You run out of money for the house. The Bible says to count the cost. That's not what happened here. You know why? Because they have all the materials they need and the money they need that was given by the king to rebuild. So that's not the problem. The problem is the people doing the work and making sure that their families are provided for. And so this is a very serious question. So let us get grain that we may eat. People had money problems because they worked hard on the wall. They didn't spend enough time on providing for the needs of their household and because of the prices all around them going through the roof. Ministering to the needs of God's people takes time, and time spent doing ministry is time away from making money often. So there needs to be a balance. I've, I've met people that are so caught up in their Their uh, career, that they never have time to serve the Lord. And then you have people that want to serve the Lord, so they just neglect working at all, and then their family's not taken care of. Both of those are wrong. Both of those are wrong. We should work enough to provide for our families, but we don't make our career the priority to the exclusion of serving the Lord. Amen? And your workplace, by the way, is your mission field. So we need to be a good steward of our time, very diligent if we're going to have both effective both ministry and providing for our family. Now notice what it says. It starts to tell us why this is taking place. Look at verse three. There were also some who said, we mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and our houses that we might buy, the, buy grain because of the famine. So some had worked hard, had, had bought property, they had vineyards on the land and they were and then because of this great famine taking place, They had to mortgage everything just so they could buy food. By the way, been to the grocery store lately? My word, unreal. Like groceries have doubled, right? And you go buy, you know, you buy three bags of groceries and you're like, did I buy a car? You know, I mean, you know, it's amazing how much groceries have gone up. And the reality is that most of us were okay, but for some people, it's devastating. For some people, they have to pick between having $6 a gallon gas or, or a $22 taco, right? I mean, it's, it's like expensive. And so these people are dealing with this. This is a real problem. And it's a problem outside of their ability, you know, to just fix it on their own. So there's famine. So when the famine, there's less food, there's less food. Food's more expensive. And so they're dealing with this. Now, it was so expensive, they mortgaged their house. Can you imagine taking a second out of your house? You could buy groceries. that's what they're doing. And we're going to find that the people giving them the mortgages are charging them through the nose. They're, They're taking usury. They're taking advantage of people who are starving at their weakest moment. Now, famine is certainly not one of no one's fault. And again, many financials really aren't ours. And again, in our case, often it can be medical bills Uh, you know, you get laid off. Maybe your industry just lays off. We're seeing that happen all over the country right now. They just shut down a whole business and lay off 4,000 people. It has nothing to do with how hard you worked. And they just let you go. And then maybe in your industry, it's hard to find another job. And then you have to find another job making way less. And you're trying to balance everything. And again, people that are doing that, we need to pray for them. And if we can, we need to help them. Amen? And then taxes. We live in Taxifornia, don't we? I mean, we do. We get taxed on the tax of the tax of the thing that we got taxed, and we tax it again, right? My wife's getting Social Security. And she goes, I mean, she goes, explain this to me. They taxed this money out of my check for 40 years, and now they're taxing the check they gave me out of the tax that they took out of the check. I go, that's right, babe. <laughs> I don't get it. I said, welcome to California. You know, they're passing a law that if you leave California, they still want you to pay taxes when you leave? I think they passed it. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> good luck collecting that money from people in Texas, right? But the point is, they'll tax you into the ground. Here's the good news. We know Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, a provider. Amen? And even in famine, God can provide. But it means we need to be faithful, right? We need to be, take an active role in it. Now, notice not only famine. Look at verse 4. There's also those, are also those who said, we borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. So they bought the vineyard. Now they got to pay tax on the vineyard again after they already bought the vineyard. Then they had to mortgage the vineyard to buy groceries. And now they have to to borrow money against the vineyard to pay their taxes. So now you can see they're overwhelmed. And in this case, it's not their fault. It's not, you know, it's what's going on around them. It's what takes place in the world. And so because of that, it's fair to say, hey, our family's starving. The wives are crying out. We need food. What are you going to do? Now, praise God for godly men like Nehemiah. We'll see what he does starting in verse 6. But the people had money problems because the government kept taxing them and because, again, they were also being you know, charged high rates for their mortgages that they needed to provide for their families. Verse 5, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as our children, and our daughters as, to be slaves. So some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them for other men have laid, have our lands and vineyards. Here's what happened. They would borrow money to pay the taxes and then they would take out a mortgage so that they could buy food and then they would default on the loan. And so in those days, what happened is if you could not pay your creditor, they would take you as a servant, a bond servant. You guys have heard that, right? You know, you're, you're, You come in and you serve until the debt's paid off. So what would happen is they would literally come and take your, oh, oh, we're going to take these three kids of yours and they're going to come work for us until your debt's paid So here's a mom crying out because she can't feed her family. Now they drag the kids away and they're serving someone else to pay off the debt. And notice it says we could not redeem them. The word redeem there means to buy back. You know when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for us. And so what would happen is if somebody became enslaved because of a debt, if you could pay the debt, you could set them free. And that's what Jesus did. We were indebted to sin. He paid the debt. He redeemed us. He set us free. Amen. But the parents are saying we can't redeem them. So can you imagine having to choose between starving to death and freeing your children? we probably all starve to death, right? But the reality is they couldn't do either. So you see this mess that's taking place. And oh, by the way, most of these people we're talking about are working on the wall and doing God's work and are also working hard to provide for their families. And all of this is taking place at the same time. And almost all of it outside of the king's taxes is because of their own people taking advantage of them. And that's what the enemy loves, is when God's people are taking advantage of their own people. Some of the loans that have been taken were in default due to high interest, and some had to give their children and as servants to their lenders until the debt was paid off. And it's not unusual for money problems to create strife and to completely disrupt what God wants to do. And if Nehemiah and his people did not find a way to do what God wanted them to do with their money and money problems, the work of God would be stopped. If they don't fix this, it's going to be stopped. The wall is not going to be built. What Satan couldn't stop, this might stop. What Satan can't do to the church, the church might do to itself. If we fight with each other, if we're not in unity with each other, if we're bad-mouthing each other, you hear people say that you Christians can't even agree with each other. Why would I want to serve the God that you serve? Guys, let's make sure that when we talk about other believers, uh, prayer praise. Amen. Prayer, praise, I raise my kids with that. Prayer, prayer, praise. Say something nice. If you can't, pray for them. If you can't do either one, take it to Shuttytown. Can I get an amen to that? That's how we raise our kids. So we'd sometimes want to separate what we do with our money from our walk with God. And I want to just say this that's a huge deception of the enemy. Every dollar you own belongs to the Lord. Amen? The house you live in is the Lord's house. You're driving God's car. You're wearing God's clothes. Be good stewards of it. Amen? And so when we buy a house, that's a a spiritual decision. Amen? When we get a new job, that's a spiritual decision. When we decide to move for Zillow, that's a spiritual decision, right? And all of those things, now again, we want to be good stewards. And yeah, having a house is a good thing. And God's provision, praise God for it. But sometimes we'll be so heavily into a house that we, we're working 80 hours a week and now we can't fellowship. And now we can't, because we, we made a decision that should have been a spiritual one and we didn't make it that way. Or we take a, a promotion at work that we know is going to take us far away from our family for great lengths of time and it destroys our marriage. And our, so these are all spiritual problems and these are all things we should take to the Lord. Amen. It's a spiritual issue. And so if we don't handle our money with the right heart and make financial decisions with an eye on eternity, and make financial decisions with an eye on eternity, we can make mistakes that will affect the work of God in our lives for years and years. Uh, I, I think I shared this once before. Many years ago, when we were living in Lancaster, there was a house that my wife and I used to drive by. We had a very nice house already. I had a really good job. This was before I was a pastor even. It was early on. And uh, we drove by this house, and every time we drive by it, my wife would want to stop and look at it. And it was this beautiful, beautiful house. My wife was in love. And every time, we'd be driving somewhere, drive by the house. We'd drive by the house on the way. So one day, a guy in my, our church comes by and he goes, hey, Dave, you know that house that your wife loves? It got foreclosed on us for sale. Now, we already had a nice house, but this was a really nice house. So I drove over there and I could not believe how inexpensive. Now, to give you an idea, this is in the 80s in Lancaster. This house was 7,000 square feet. It had a humongous swimming pool, tennis courts. It had a guest house in the back that was filled with uh, an ar- arcade kind of thing. And I thought this would be amazing for our, I was a youth pa- This was when I first became a youth pastor. I wasn't a senior pastor yet. I thought, man, we can have the whole youth group over here. We can have the church over here for baptisms. Now, here's the crazy part. Guess how much they were selling it for? Two ninety nine. Two ninety nine. I bought a house for two ten that was two ninety. The house had sold for like seven hundred. It defaulted on the loan, and they wanted two ninety nine. So I go over there, and I'm like, "He drove me over there." I go, "We'll take it." And so I said, "We'll take it." I tell my wife, "We go over there." She's picking out, uh, d- you know, she's got different. Uh, oh, this kind of hardwood, and we're gonna change this carpet, and we're gonna do this. And I'm driving home from work the next day, and the Holy Spirit's giving me that you don't need that house. <laughs> Amen. We didn't need that house. And you know what I said? I said, you know what that becomes it becomes golden handcuffs. And what I mean by that is if we moved into an even bigger house, we increased our house payment even more, that would require me to work even harder, to pay the bills, right? And then less opportunity for ministry. And you know what's crazy is we decided not to buy. I came home, we had a bunch of people at our house. And we had a pool, and the everybody's there barbecuing. And I came on. I called my wife in the kitchen. I go, babe, I had to I, I check about it on the way home. We're not taking the house. I already called the realtor. We're not doing it. And this is one of the greatest compliments my wife ever. She just picked up all the stuff, threw it in the trash. And the ladies were like, what happened? Oh, we're not buying the house. She goes, how do you feel about that? She goes, well, I'm not happy, but my husband prays. So we have to do what God says. I'm like, that's why I married that girl right there. Now, you know what's crazy is? A year later, God called us to plan to move to San Jose. And if we had bought that other house, we could have never gone. We would have been up, you know what I mean? So it's golden handcuffs. So, what I mean by that, it's a spiritual decision. So, sometimes we make these decisions really quickly. And I have people that I know that have car payments that are $2,000 a month. Does that thing make you breakfast? (laughs) Does it clean your house? Is it a Ramba in the off time? I and mean, what is it doing for you, right? But the point is that when we're making financial decisions, we need to have a spiritual perspective because sometimes we'll make a decision that then handcuffs us from doing what God wants us to do. Amen? Well, this is where they're at. They're in a tough spot. And handling the money again with the right heart before God is being a giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, God had given laws to his people to not take advantage of those who were in need. Back in Exodus 22, he says, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be a money lender to them. You shall not charge him interest. So here's what would happen is if somebody needed food or something necessary, you could loan them money and you could not charge them interest. Now, if somebody was building a big house or something, you could charge them interest. But when it came to their needs, now I want to tell you this, I never loan people money but if people need it, I just give it to them. You know why? Because I feel like it's God's money. i just give it to them. People call the church and want to borrow money from the church. I'm like, we're not a bank. We don't loan money. What's your, what's your situation? If we find out they don't have food and they've got kids, here's, we'll give them. i just give it to them. Amen? And I think that if you're going to loan somebody money, especially another Christian, don't charge them interest. And if, you're, and if you're willing to loan it to them, just be willing to give it to them if they don't pay you back. Because early on, I would loan people money, and then they wouldn't pay me back, and then they would would stop coming to church because they were afraid they couldn't make their payment. You know what I mean? And I finally just said, keep it. I don't want it. It's all God's anyway. And let's just, you know, if it's all God's money, I don't need to keep track of it. Can I get amen to that? Now, again, we don't want to give money to the lazy to prop up their simple behavior. I say all the time, I'll give you the shirt off my back to do the right thing. I'm not going to give you a nickel to do the wrong thing. Amen? So this is the situation that they're in. And now watch Nehemiah So point number one there, learning to balance serving the Lord with providing for your family at the same time. Now watch, Nehemiah is going to catch wind of this. And Nehemiah is going to respond like a godly man should. Now watch, it says, and I, this is Nehemiah, became very angry when I heard the outcry and these words. Now the Bible says, be angry and sin not. And there is such a thing as righteous anger. But let me define righteous anger for you. It's being angry about something that has nothing to do with you. Well, I'm angry because that person, that's not righteous anger. Well, that person said that to me. Pray for him. Righteous anger. I have righteous anger over abortion. Amen? Innocent babies are being killed. That's righteous anger. I get righteously angry about things like that. Well, he's righteously angry. Why is he angry? Because he's Gonna, he's found out that the people are starving. He's found out that there's usury, and they're being charged into the ground, and he's angered by it, and now he's going to bring some exhortation. Again, there is actually a place for anger in a person's life, but again, be angry and sin not. And again, you're going to see that even though he's angry, watch how he responds. You know Jesus was angry. we ever see Jesus angry? When was Jesus angry? Money changers, right? It says in John chapter two, and the Jews' uh, pastor was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found the temple that they sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple. So literally he took a whip and drove them out of the temple because they were changing money at a higher rate, ripping people off. And they would tell them that certain animals weren't clean so they'd have to buy one of their clean animals and they could charge them a ton of money. And the Lord said, you're not going to turn my father's house into a den of thieves. Amen? So there is righteous anger, but again, it's not, not vengeful anger. It's not getting either, even anger. That's not righteous anger. Righteous anger is when we're angered by something that doesn't impact us directly. So he becomes very angry, but notice what he says, you know, because he heard the outcry. He became angry because these money problems led to a lack of unity among the people of God and he saw that there was division, and he saw there was people taking advantage of each other, and it broke his heart. Uh, no, and no mention here was made of the work on the walls, and Nehemiah got angry because these money problems stopped the work of the Lord, and it also frustrated him that they could stand so strong against the enemy but fall so quickly when there's division amongst themselves. Notice what he says in verse 7, and this is key. After serious thought, underline that in your Bible... He was angry, and he flew off the handle quickly. No. He was angry, and literally part of that word thought is like meditation. He stopped, he meditated, he waited upon the Lord, he heard from God, and then he responded. When you fly off the handle, good things don't happen. The Bible says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Righteous anger is anger that comes from God. The anger of man is unrighteous anger and the anger of man never produces the righteousness of God. So praise God that here's Nehemiah. He's angered by it, but he's going to take a step back. He's going to take it to the Lord. He's going to meditate on it. He's going to seek the Lord. And then it says, I sought the Lord. After much thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. Now I love this. He he finds out, okay, why is this happening? After serious thought, no doubt asking some people, why why are you unable to... Well, man, I'm getting taxed into the ground over here, and my my mortgage rate is this number, and and they're taking advantage of us. So he calls in all these rich guys, the noble guys, and he dresses them down. And then he brings them in front of a crowd. Man, I love this. This is called accountability, He calls in all the people. Hey, everybody, let's let's mount up. These are the guys that are charging you too much. And they're going to stop doing that right now. Got to love Nehemiah. Praise the Lord. Amen. He sees the work of God about to come to a screeching halt. He's going to tell the truth. He's going to call these guys out. Exodus, you're not supposed to charge usury. You're charging usury. And he's going to bring them in front of a crowd of people. Now they're accountable. If they respond and say, yeah, you're right. We won't do that anymore. Now you got a whole crowd of people they're accountable to. And I love that he brings it out in front of them. Nehemiah teaches us the way a leader should approach problems is head on. He's not a respecter of men. He's a respecter of God's word. He's a respecter of the truth. Amen? He's not afraid of of making the noblemen feel bad. He's not worried about that. You guys are dishonoring God by what you're doing. You need to stop it. And he's calling them out. And praise God for that. We need people like that. Amen? Usury, again, is interest that is either too high or should not be charged at all. The Bible says it's wrong to make money off someone's financial need. And uh, if someone needs money for the most basic needs in life, they should either be given the money or loaned it with no interest. So he's going to handle them publicly. He brings them in front of a crowd of people. Verse 8, And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you sell even sell your brethren? Or should should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Here's what he said. He brings them in. He says, hey, by the way, we took money and the people that needed to be redeemed from Babylon, we bought them back and we brought them all the way back here. And now you're enslaving them again. We literally took our money and bought them out of slavery, out of bondage in Babylon, brought them here. And now you're re-enslaving them after we've delivered them. You're going to put them back into bondage. They're in bondage to Babylon. They've been set free. Now they're going to be in bondage to their own people. And he's calling them out. And notice when he says this, he's very authoritative. Will you even sell your brethren? You're going to sell them? You're going to take them in bondage and then sell them as slaves to pay off your debt? Is that what you're going to do to your own people? Should they be sold? Do you want Nehemiah? Like, should we buy them from you? Are we going to have to do that because you've enslaved them? And then he says here at the end of it, they were silenced and found nothing to say. You know, when you, when you call someone out with the truth, often that's the response. They got nothing to say. The truth trumps everything. Amen? When you speak the truth, and you, you know, do it in love, but don't apologize for it. Tell the truth. Guys, we're doing it. No, this is the truth. This is what we're doing. Well, I don't, think, I don't care what you think. This is the truth. This is what we're doing. It's the truth. We're not going to lie. Okay. So here's what he did. He called him out. This is the truth. Verse 9, "'Then I said, "'What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations or the enemies?' They were doing in secret what brought shame and silenced them when the truth came out. Here's what they were doing. They were doing this and maybe thought nobody really knew, but he gathers all the people and they all like, yeah, we're, getting, we're paying 80% on our... T- we're paying 55%. We're getting buried in the ground. We'll never be able to pay it back. So then he brings them all together. He calls them all out and says, this is what these guys are doing. And by the way, you should live your life in such a way, if everybody knew everything you're doing, you wouldn't be ashamed of it. Amen. Too often, people do things in secret. They hope nobody finds out. There shouldn't be anything that you need to keep in secret. Anybody who wants to ever, I don't care when, you can look at my phone, you can go through my stuff anytime you want. It cracks me up when, oh, I don't let my wife look at my phone. What sin are you committing, bro? What do you got to hide? Can I get amen to that? You can look at my phone anytime you want. You can go through my stuff anytime you want. My kids are my house. I went through their stuff all the time. I will look at your stuff. I will open your mail. I don't care. They ain't throwing me in jail. I'm your dad. Can I get amen to that? (laughs) we're We're just letting this out, right? I'm here, okay? And that's the reality. And you know what? Here he is. He's calling them out. This is what you've been doing. Now the truth came out. Oh, we look bad. Well, guess what? When you're living an ungodly life and you're taking advantage of your people, you are bad. You don't just look bad. And again, may our private dealings be done in a way that we would bring no shame if we were all revealed. They were giving their enemies an opportunity to mock their faith, too. Hey, do you hear what they're doing to each other over there? They're charging each other 80%. You know what that's doing? God's getting mocked. Look what these Christians do to each other. Look how they treat each other. Look how they talk about each other. They can't even agree with each other. In this case, their greed and their lack of concern for those who are starving while doing God's work and their focus on self alone. Notice what he says here you have no fear of God. Here's the biggest problem in the United States. There is no fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and it's also what produces a godly testimony. You want to have a godly testimony? You fear God. If you want to be wise, fear God. You want to have knowledge, fear God. Honor God in all you say and all you do. Don't watch things you wouldn't watch without Jesus sitting next to you or your grandkids on your lap. Amen? I am the oldest, I'm the biggest fogey ever. My wife laughs at me. I'm not watching Ozzie and Harriet. I'm not even kidding either. From 1952, 11 years before I was born. It's hilarious and it's totally clean. I watch Andy Griffith and The Little House on the Prairie and the Waltons, okay? You know why? Because it's just clean stuff. And I can watch all my grandkids on my knee, amen? And a lot of stuff that we watch, it, it, you know, it, it, it infiltrates our mind and draws us away from the things of God, Amen? And this exhortation here is he's like, you don't fear God. That's your problem. I don't care who the next president is. I hope he fears God. Fear God. I'll vote for you. Say you fear God, I'll vote for you every time. Amen? Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. He says also, verse 10... With my brethren, my servants, I'm lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Now, I love this. He calls him out and says, you're charging usury. What you're doing is wrong. It's illegal. You don't fear God. Guess what? I'm going to buy all these people their food. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to bail these people out. This is Nehemiah is going to use his own money and the money of others to get these people uh, back on their feet and he's going to do it. God bless him. Amen? He doesn't just say somebody should help him, he's going to help him himself. That's what a leader does. Opens up his wallet and does it himself. And I love that picture there in verse 10. Nehemiah not only rebukes them for their behavior, he leads by example. He lends those in need money and grain without charging interest or just gave it to them. And we are called to be different than the world. Now look at verse 11. Now, he's going to exhort them. He didn't just say, you don't fear God and what you're doing is wrong. Now he's going to give them what they need to do. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine, the oil that you have charged. Here's what he says. Give them back all their stuff today. Give them their children back Today. Give them their house back today. Give them back their vineyards back today. Give them back the oil and the wine and everything you've taken from them. Give them back all the money you took from them and all the interest you charged them. Give it all back today. Praise God for Nehemiah, amen? This guy was a cupbearer, sitting next to the dude tasting his wine. And now here he is, the governor. He's the governor of Judah and he's making a stand and we need godly men and women like that, amen? And I love what he says this day. He doesn't say, when you get around to it, when you feel more comfortable, when you can move your money around, fix it today. And guys, when we repent, we need to fix it today with God. Amen? Amen. Lord, I, Lord, please forgive me. I'll try in the next six months to do better. No, today I'm getting behind. It's okay. It's good stuff. Amen? Amen? Look at verse 12 and 13. Now watch this. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them, and we will do as you say. Now, it's easy to say that. It's another thing to do that. It's easy to be caught and go, okay, I'll never do it again. Now, I love this. They're caught, and they said, we'll do it. We'll do it. Now, there's a lot of pressure. They have a crowd there, remember? He's gathered a crowd, a great assembly. They're they're in front of the great assembly. Yeah, we'll do it. Okay, we'll do it, right? (laughs) We'll we'll do it. By the way, you don't fear God, okay? And by the way, I'm going to pay all their debts, okay? And you need to do all of it. And they go, okay, we'll do it. Now, watch what he does. I love this. Watch what he does. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to their promise. Okay, are you going to do it? Hey, priest, come on out here. Come on, let's go. Come on. All right, bring it out. Bring it out. Okay, let's do the covenant before God thing with these guys right now. All right, come on up. All right, we're going to make a covenant. We're going to make a sacrifice, and you're going to make a covenant right now before all these people and before Almighty God. Okay, now, what are you going to do? And he's making them make a covenant before the Lord. By the way, the Bible says when you made those covenants, if you disobey God, that often God would strike you down dead. They would cut an animal in half. He'd walk between it to say, we've made this oath. And so they're making this oath. They're making this promise. And he's saying, well, look, let's make sure that you're serious about this promise. God bless Nehemiah. Don't you like this guy better every chapter? Nehemiah, little guy, Nehemiah. But look at him, man. God's using him. Now watch. Watch what it says in verse 13. And it says, Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house, from his property who does not perform this promise, even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. See, now that's biblical, bro. Uh, guys, there it is. The amens are right there. So all the people are there, and he says, Look, if you don't do this, and he's shaking the dust from him, he's like, May God come and bring righteous judgment upon you. And all the the whole crowd's like, Amen. Now that's some pressure to do what's right. Amen? And praise the Lord. For again, someone taking a stand. When these guys have been taking such advantage of them. And it says, and they pray and, and praised the Lord. They said, Amen. and the people did according to his promise. So they did it. They promised it, they made an oath, and they did it. Last two points. Uh, verse 14, by being a godly example. Now watch what he does. I love this about Nehemiah. Watch his example. Look at verse 14. And it says there: Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate from the king's provisions. Now, the governor was paid about 40 shillings a month, and they had all their food and everything else provide for it. And Often they had so much food that they would sell some of it, and they would get very rich. They would also often take buy some of the land at a cheaper rate and do things like that. To take it for themselves. Nehemiah said, I've been serving for 12 years, I've never taken a dime. I don't want any of the money because my people are already taxed enough, and they're not gonna to have to be paying taxes to me. And I'm not gonna to touch any any of that stuff. I'm not gonna use it for me. So he doesn't just preach it, he lives it. Amen. This is a man who gives and loves and serves, and he's leading by a godly example. Then he says in verse 15, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them their bread and their wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over them, but I did not do so because of what? Fear of God. God. I'm doing this for God. I'm not doing this for the world. I don't, isn't it amazing? We have have politicians that make 190,000 a year. They go into office after 10 years and they're worth 30 million. How did that happen? What stock are you buying? How did you go from making 190 you've made 1.9 million dollars in ten years, had to live off of that money, and now you're worth thirty million, Pelosi. You know, how does that work out? Right? It's just nuts. How does something crooked's going on somewhere, right? And isn't it great to have an honest Nehemiah said, Yeah, I suppose I'm not getting paid. I don't want it. Watch this. It gets even better as we finish up here. You gotta love this guy more. He said, Indeed, I also continued the work which was on the wall. And we did not buy any land. See, we didn't go out and buy any land. I'm not investing in the temporal. I'm investing in the eternal. He was working on the wall while he wasn't being paid as governor. He was also leading. All my servants were gathered there for the work. So he had servants that were given to him to serve as king. He just had them working on the wall next to him. He just had all of them doing God's work with him. Instead of serving him, they were serving the Lord. Instead of getting, taxing the people, he used it for the Lord and for, and he's going to use it for the people. Now watch what it says here. Verse 16, indeed, I continued to work on the wall. Number 17 at the bottom, and at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nation around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me. And every one every 10 days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of all this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on the people. All this food was made. So you know what he did? He brought people in and fed them. Instead of having all this food for himself, he's bringing in 150 people at a time and saying, sit on down. We're going to feed all of you. So instead of taking it for himself, he used it to minister to others. Guys, that's exactly what we're supposed to do with what God gives us. It's not about building our kingdom. It's not about making ourselves as comfortable as possible. And we should be good stewards of God's resources. But guys, when this time is coming past, only what we've done for Christ will last. And we want to invest in stuff that will outlast this life. Amen? So point number three there for is by being a godly, is this a godly example? He's not just telling them, man. He's doing it. He's a king that's not getting paid for 12 years. And he's still working and providing for himself. And then he takes all the food that's given to him that he could resell, and he's feeding people with it. And then he's not buying land at a discounted rate, which kings usually did. He had an eternal perspective. He was focused on God and focused on men because he feared God. And then the last verse says this, and I love it. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. He's seeking praise only from God, never from men. This seems a little arrogant, like... He's asking God to bless him for the good he's doing, but do you know that God will bless you for the good that you do for his kingdom? And he says, we're not to seek the praise of men, but you know what? We can seek the praise of God because he wants to. He wants to bless you. He wants to give you crowns in heaven. Some people say, well, I don't want a crown. Well, you know, I don't know that I need a crown, but he says I should want one, so I want one. Amen? And most people believe when we get the crowns in heaven, we're just going to throw them all back at his feet. And I want to have some crowns to throw back at his feet. How about you? And I want to be—I want to be faithful to serve the Lord and to be used for His kingdom. He lived every moment and every day to please and honor the Lord. Uh, If I had another kid, I'd be holding Nehemiah. Might be wrapping up in that in that that name, that list name, right? I just love this guy more. Every, every chapter that I read about Him, every chapter that I study, I've never taught through this book in my life. Did you know that? It's my first time teaching through this book. And so I, I'm loving it. I'm being blessed by it. So in closing, division among God's people, lessons learned from strife among God's people. First of all, we must learn to balance serving the Lord and providing for our family at the same time. And again, it's not either or, it should be both. And I get it. You know, If you have health issues, if you have different reasons why you can't do certain things, I totally get it but at the very, you know, but make sure that you're providing for your family and make sure that you're doing what you can to minister to others. And you know what? Ministry doesn't have to be at the church. You can be salt and light at your workplace. You know, when you go to work, the Holy Spirit just entered the building, amen? And we should be sensitive that, Lord, use me wherever I am, wherever I go. I I hand out about 10 of these a day, 10 to 15 of these a day. I carry them everywhere I go. I meet people. I, mean, I ran to a guy at Costco yesterday, and they went over to, the, somebody gave me a, di- a, a gift card to this meat place. I walked in, I go, dude, i just like, what are you following me around, bro? What's up? You know? And we start talking, and I have my man of faith and He said, you're a man of faith? He goes, I'm manifest. man of faith. I said, where do you go to? Fil-? We're talking about Jesus in the meat aisle for 45, and I said, by the way, Acts 10, rice, kill, and eats. We're in the right place. It's a good thing. So the point I'm making is, if you pray for divine appointments, they come every day. Amen. And we want to have an impact on eternity, and we want it to last. We need to confront those who are in the wrong. Now, again, you might not be in a position to do it, and maybe you need to encourage someone else to do it. But guys, we want to do that. We want to do it in love, not to destroy people, but to restore people. Amen? Thirdly, be a godly example. Be a godly example. I pray that we will live in such a way that people would see Jesus in us. And I know that doesn't even sound like we're worthy to even think about that, but God's called, called us Christian means little Christ, followers of Christ. Amen? And We should live in such a way that when people see us, they want to know the person that we serve. And then finally, may we seek only the praise of God, never the praise of man. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples we've seen in tonight's text. And Lord, I pray that there would be unity in the body of Christ in the Keneo Valley and beyond. Help us, Lord, not to seek to build our church, but your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be a Christ-like and a godly example to the world around us. Help us, Lord, to live every day, to bring glory and honor to your name. And then, Lord, if someone needs a word of encouragement or exhortation, may we make ourselves available. But, Lord, may we also receive it when we're the ones that need to be corrected. And, Lord, we just ask that you would be glorified. I pray that you do exceedingly abundantly of all we could ask or think. I pray for divine appointments in the coming days. We ask all these things in your holy and precious name, we pray, and all God's people said...